Okay, so this is week four um, of our class on covenant theology. Uh, if you look at the, the back side of your handout, you can see the, the schedule uh, and see where we've been so far. We've talked about creation. We've talked about Noah and Abraham. Last week, Kelly uh, led the session on Moses. This week, we're talking about David. Um, and then we'll do two more weeks in kind of a biblical overview, looking at the prophets and the first intimations in the new covenant, um, and then Jesus uh, as the fulfillment uh, of the whole thing. Um, as we have, I think, almost every week, there's some places where you just can't resist pointing out how Jesus fulfills parts of the story you're looking at, and we'll certainly do that this morning um, as we look at, at David. Another thing that we'll do this morning, the, the last two weeks of this class are going to be um, a brief, since it's only one morning, overview of systematic theology through a covenantal lens, which just gives a nice, um, yeah, just a nice perspective uh, on, um, you know, the whole of our, of our doctrine. Um, and we'll be looking at a couple of systematic concepts this morning. Um, when you get to David, you start seeing, um, you know, some of the, a little more of how we understand things like the image of God, um, uh, how we understand the church. The last week of this class will actually be entirely about the church uh, as, the, as the covenant community. And again, we'll start to see a little bit of that uh, this morning. Um, okay, before we start, I, th I liked what Kelly did last week in um, getting volunteers to read uh, scripture before we actually get there. Um, could I, and so could I ask for some volunteers now, and then in about 10 minutes we'll be there. Um, we're going to be rooted a lot in 2 Samuel this morning, especially 2 Samuel 7. That's the heart of the, of the covenant with David. Could somebody volunteer to read 2 Samuel 5, 6 through 10? Yep, great, thank you. And 2 Samuel 6, 1 to 15. Peter, thanks. And then I'm going to get two volunteers. We're going to read all of 2 Samuel 7. So it's going to be a long, a long passage, but it's worth reading. Um, could someone read 2 Samuel 7, 1 to 17? Emily? And then 18 to the end of the chapter? Yep, 10. Okay, great. Great. Um, so I want to start with this. I, I mentioned a moment ago that we're going to be seeing uh, a little more about how we understand what it, be, what it means to be made in the image of God. We've talked about this quite a lot in different contexts uh, here. We've talked about, we've had classes on what it means to be human. Um, we just did a class on Genesis 1 through 12. We just did another thing about, you know, the covenants made with Adam and Noah. And um, who, I mean, from, from that, does anyone remember um, when we say um, that humanity is made in the image of God? Um, oftentimes our minds uh, are drawn to uh, capacities that humans have. So we tend to think, oh, okay, image of God, um, we reflect God in our rationality, the fact that we have reason. We reflect him in the fact that we have language and he's a speaking God. We reflect him in our, in our creativity. Does anyone remember any problematic, any problems with thinking of the image of God primarily in terms of capacities like that, like rationality, language? Yeah, Emily? Yep. Yeah, yeah. So it doesn't account for people who are uh, without those capacities in one way or another, whether they are born without um, capacities, whether uh, they lose them as the result of a traumatic injury of some kind. Uh, it doesn't account, I mean, you know, all humans, you know, we, we would say that, that, you know, human beings uh, are human, you know, from the moment of conception to the moment of death. Um, and beyond death. Um, and every human being at those extreme ends of life uh, is at that point without rationality that you can like measure, that you can see, you know, that you could interact with. Um, it's interesting, there, there have been attempts to define uh, humanity or at least, you know, define the point at which a human being is alive, a living human being in terms of measurable brain activity. 
Um, you know, we always seem to want something that's measurable, uh, quantitative, something that we can uh, uh, see. Um, so instead, what, uh, uh, the way we've talked about the image of God um, in, in the various classes has been instead to say um, that the image of God is a matter of this vocation that humanity is given. Uh, to be, um, on your handout, I say a, a royal representative. And actually, um, more specific, might be better to say a royal priest. Um, that there's both, uh, there's both a political, a ruling, a governing aspect, uh, and there's also a religious uh, aspect. Um, but specifically, a religious representation aspect. That's what the priests are. Uh, they are the representatives of the God before the people and of the people before God. And the idea is that in calling humanity uh, into a vocation where they were to um, subdue the earth, they were to rule over it, they're to steward it on God's behalf, um, they are in some ways to uh, reflect what he is like to the rest of creation. Um, he's calling humanity into a role that combines you know, these offices of, of, of king and priest, um, where they are to rule on his behalf, they're to represent him. And the idea is that um, God's presence is with humanity, that, that where humanity is, God marks that place out as being his. He says he is there. Um, and, and, you know, that idea connected to the image of God really comes through when you look at, you know, the ancient Near Eastern context and look at how the surrounding cultures, um, how they understood uh, images, images of the king, images of their gods. You know, when you put an image of the king in a place, you said, this is, the, this is his place. You know, he may be ruling off in the capital, you know, hundreds and thousands of miles away, but he's here, his authority is here. Uh, when you put an image of God in the temple, it meant the God is here. Uh, this is his place. Um, he rules, you know, from this, from this temple. Um, and God does this amazing thing where he tells his people, don't make images, right? Don't make images of me. Don't make images of other things. Don't bow down to them because uh, he has already made his own image. Uh, he has made humanity. Um, now, there's an interesting place in the David story. This is where we're getting, you know, where um, you can already start to see, um, you know, that the, um, the image of God understood as uh, God's rule, uh, his, his representative rule, you know, through, uh, through the king, um, is, is not primarily a matter of capacities. Um, you remember the, the very beginning of the David story, the very beginning of like where we first actually meet David? Um, who remembers that? Who remembers that story? What, what, what happens? Yeah, Ambrose. Uh, Samuel went to Jesse's house to look at all the sons, and he went from largest to smallest, and uh, none of them were the king. Yeah. Or the other one, David took run to the family that was the generation. Yeah, exactly, exactly. There's a lot of David's story that we're not going to cover this morning. Um, it's, it's, it's a huge story. It's the longest uh, single you know, biographical story in the, in the Bible. Um, and even in the sections that we're looking at, we're going to be skipping over some like, really fascinating um, narrative. Um, you know, and, and, but, but the beginning of the story is when um, God has rejected Saul, the first king chosen over Israel, and he sends Samuel to go visit the family of Jesse, and says, I've chosen one of these. Um, and Samuel sees the oldest son first and thinks, this must be him. He's tall, he's handsome, he's strong, he's everything you want a king to be. God says, nope, that's not it. Uh, goes to the next one, goes to the next one, goes to the next one. And you remember what, what, is, what, is, what does God say about the difference between the way humans judge and the way he, he judges? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You know, and so, you know, there's, there's a little bit even here of saying, you know, God is not impressed by our capacities, um, but God's spirit, you know, is going to rule uh, through the one that, that he has chosen. Um, so, um, let's take a look at this 
Uh, let's take a look at this, this covenant. Um, remember from past classes, what is, what is a covenant? Relationship with God, yes? Right, right. Not like a contract. Yep. Um, what else? What are some other things you remember about what's a covenant? Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so God comes and um, initiates this relationship, says on the basis of how I've related to you, on the basis of what I've done to, uh, for you, we're now related and therefore... Here's the behavior that's expected. Um, and there are blessings and curses associated with those. Yep. Um, we've talked about how it has family-like connections, how there's often father-son language um, in, in covenants. Um, when we get to 2 Samuel 7, when we get to David, um, as far as the Old Testament is concerned, this is the climax of the covenant. Um, you know, the... the the period of David's rule, and in some sense, the beginning of Solomon's rule, the first few chapters of Solomon's rule, this is as good as it gets in the Old Testament. Um, uh, we did a class on First Kings a few years ago, and, and Trey did a great job of going to those early chapters of Kings um, and just showing how you know, Solomon, the wisdom he exercises, the wealth he amasses, the reputation he garners, all of these things, you know, indicate to the reader, you know, this is what it's supposed to look like. This is what it's supposed to look like for humanity to rule uh, on God's behalf, right? To be God's royal representative. Um, and sadly, that, you know, that lasts for one chapter uh, before Solomon is, is led astray. Um, but as far as the Old Testament is concerned, this, this, this is the climax. Um, let's talk a little bit about what leads right up to this covenant and what, what makes it the climax. So here's where I'd like our, our volunteers to talk about, to, to read. So who had Second Samuel 5, uh, 6 through 10? Yep. Now the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, and they said to David, you shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame shall turn you away, thinking David cannot enter here. Nevertheless, David captured the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. And David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him reach the lame and the blind, who are hated by David's soul, through the water to him. Therefore they say, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. So David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built all around from the billow and inward. And David became greater and greater the Lord God of hosts was with him. Okay, so what happened there, um, this is the point at which um, David, and in David, the nation of Israel, uh, takes the city of Jerusalem. So prior to this point, David has been ruling from a different city, um, Hebron. Uh, Jerusalem has been held by a different people, uh, the Jebusites. Um, and, this is, and this is the point at which David takes the city, which um, you, can, you can read in this thing, it was a very strong city. It had been well defended. Nobody had been able to take it. Um, it had been fortified for, uh, for centuries. Um, the book of Chronicles actually gives more of the details about how they enter in through this water shaft and kind of sneak their way in um, and, uh, and take this city. Um, but this is an important moment um, because what we're going to see is that um, the uh, the content of this covenant um, is strongly built around a concept of permanence. Um, and you need a permanent place. You need a place where God is going to reign. Um, um, and, and Jerusalem um, is, is going to occupy that, that role. Uh, so it's very significant. Second Samuel 5, uh, David takes Jerusalem. So that's the first thing. Um, who had Second Samuel 6? 1 to 15. Peter, yeah. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to 
familiar the ark of God, which is called the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits in throne on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahiah, uh, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahiah went before the ark. And David and all the host, all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs, lyres, and harps, and tambourines, and castanets, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obedidam, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obedidam, the Gittite, three months. The Lord left Obedidam and all his household. And it was told King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So, God went, and so David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and the fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. Thanks. Um, so a lot going on here. And like I said, we, we don't have time to pay attention to, to all of it. Um, if you go on and read this story of David and Michal, even more going on. Um, the key thing, though, um, is simply the ark coming to Jerusalem. Um, David has now taken this city from which he's going to, to reign, um, and the Ark of the Covenant uh, has now come into that city. Um, and you can see the story is kind of interesting in how it, it doesn't come straight there. There's, there's a bit of hesitation um, as, uh, as David um, uh, deals with the awe and the holiness uh, of, of God. Um, but uh, but with those two things in place, uh, this city, you know, David's reign in this city is established. Um, and now the center of religion, the center of worship, uh, the ark, uh, is now in that, in that city as well. Um, with those two things in place, uh, we're ready to take a look at, at 2 Samuel 7 uh, and see this, this covenant uh, that God makes with, with David. So this is going to be a longer stretch of reading, uh, but it's worth it's worth going through this. So, um, Emily, I think you had the first 17 verses. Yep. Now, when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in the house of Peter, the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, Moreover, the Lord declared to you that the Lord will make you 
Thanks. Before we go on, just note a, a, a couple quick things. Um, the word covenant doesn't show up uh, in, this, in this passage. Um, but you can see a lot of the elements of, of a covenant. Um, this is true of, of Genesis as well, by the way. Um, you can see that family language, right? Um, verse 14, I will be to him a father. Uh, he, shall, he shall be to me a son. Um, you can see kind of a historical prologue that God gives. He, he tells this story about, um, I mean, in some ways the story goes all the way back to Egypt, but even just with respect to David, he talks about, look, you were in the pasture and I was with you and I brought you from that pasture and brought you here to rule. Um, there is, um, uh, there are blessings um, associated uh, with um, righteous living, there are curses. Um, we'll talk about these a bit more in a moment, but again, verse 14, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him. Um, so even though the word covenant doesn't show up, there's a bunch of elements here to tell us, you know, God is, is forming a covenant with David. Um, so let's, let's go on. Let's read the rest of this chapter. Who was going to read? Um, yeah, Tim, 18 to the end. So then King David went in sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this small this is this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you, for you know your servant, O Lord God? Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you. There is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people, whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house. And do as you have spoken, and your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord, of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. All right, thank you. Um, might seem a small thing, a bit of a digression from the, the topic this morning, but I think it's really significant and important for us to note when David says uh, in verse 27, therefore your servant has found courage uh, to pray. Uh, I think it's worth noting that it takes courage to pray, um, that it takes courage um, to latch on to God's promises. Um, and to pray that he'll be faithful to them. And, and, and David here expresses the key. It's because he's heard these promises. Um, you know, it's the fact that God has spoken to him and has made promises to him that gives him the courage um, to pray uh, to God. It's not the other way around. It's not David's courage to pray that elicits God's favor. Um, so, side note, but I think very significant. Um, all right, let's, let's unpack... 
this covenant then a bit. Um, one thing that we see, David is referred in a couple places um, uh, in 1 Samuel 13 and then again in Acts. Um, he's referred to as a man after God's own heart. And that might puzzle you if you know David's biography. Um, you know, if you know some of the things that he has done, some of the things that he's going to do. Um, David is not a perfect man. Uh, David commits uh, murder. David commits adultery. Um, based on what we just read, though, what do you think it is uh, that would allow the Bible to refer to David as a man after God's own heart? How is it that, God's, that David's heart, in some ways, is beating um, synchronously? together with, with God. I see at the very start, David has this idea of building a house for God. Mm -hmm. When God says no, he, he shuts down immediately. Okay? Right. I'm not going to do it. You don't want this, I'm not doing it. Right. No matter what grandiose plans I might have had, I might have conjured up some great palace for you, all the great things I was going to do, cedar and gold and silver and precious stone and all that, but if you don't want it, no. All right, he's sophisticated. Wait. Yep, yep. Yeah, I think that's right. I think, you know, David's, um, yeah, immediate submission uh, to the will of God uh, is, is an, important, an important facet of that. Leonard. I think that's. I think that is important. Also, yeah, seeing that. Yeah, yeah. So Leonard's saying, um, it is God who has given David everything that he has, including his heart. Yeah. So despite the fact that he does, you know, he's told, "No, you're not going to build a house," and he does submit to that. Um, what is significant about his desire to build that house? What is it that he's understanding about God's um, purposes? The way this the way this chapter reads. So I mean, it's very significant that David took Zion, right? It's, it's yeah, called Zion, right? So yeah, that's one of the first things he did as king was to was to take the city and establish his throne in Zion. Yep. I, I think he feels incomplete that as he's there, has his house, yeah. and God doesn't have a house there. Yeah, yeah. And it's this whole part that you, we read before, right, in terms of this mixed emotion that David had, should I, shouldn't I, mm -hmm. right? Is God to, am I afraid to have God's house in, in right. having dwelling with me? Is that too much? Right, right. Yeah, that's a good... That's worth more study. <laughs> That's what I say when somebody raises a question I haven't thought about yet. That's good. Um, yeah, I mean, I, it's not enough for David that he is established. You know, that, that he is now in his city, and even that the temp, you know, the, the, the ark uh, is, is there. Um, it's not enough for him that God is, is in a dwelling that is less permanent than his own. Um, he wants to build a permanent dwelling place uh, for God. Um, and in fact, even though God says, you're not going to be the one to do this, if you look at the way God responds and the promises that he makes, he does emphasize permanence. He does emphasize, uh, in fact, it is my purpose to dwell with you in a permanent way. In fact, there's even a bit of irony in this. Um, 
irony or humor, I guess. Um, so the prophet Nathan, um, someone impetuously <laughs> says, go do all that is in your heart for the Lord is with you without having consulted God first. Um, and so he gets it, he gets it wrong in that sense, um, although when he says the Lord is with you, he's not wrong about that. Um, God comes to Nathan and says, go and tell my servant David, um, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? Um, the, um, even the grammar, even the way the, the, the sentences are structured in, in some of these verses, you know, emphasize, um, uh, you know, emphasize that God is saying, you know, are you going to build a house for me? You know, it's like he's saying, let me get this straight. You, um, you who are mortal, you who are flesh, uh, you who are going to die, you are going to provide permanence for me. Is that what you're saying? Um, the way he responds um, says, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you, you a house. Um, and as God amplifies what he means by I'm going to build a house, what is he actually talking about? Is he saying that he's going to build David a, a better palace? Fuck the perpetuity of his reign, right? Of his, of his family. Right, right, right. It's his family. Yeah, it's this, it's this endless reign of his, of his descendants. Um, you know, what God is doing there, um, David is worried that God's in a tent, right? And tents... Decay, decay, they get old. Um, you read commentaries on this and they, they, they point out, you know, this tent had been traveling a lot um, for hundreds of years. It was probably in lousy shape. It probably didn't smell very good, you know, every time you unpacked it. Um, you know, and so these, these, these tents see decay. God goes right to the fact that humanity sees decay. He says, I'm going to build a house for you that's going to address this problem. Uh, an even deeper problem than, than the one that you think that I have. Um, if you skip to Acts, actually, actually, before we go to Acts, let me point out a couple places in the Old Testament that uh, express some of this problem, the problem of death, the problem of uh, the lack of permanence that humanity enjoys. Um, so if, you, if I can find it. Psalm 39. Psalm 39, just a few verses here starting at 4. O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stand as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they're in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. Um, expressing this, you know, the anxiety of the fact that because you're going to die, uh, whatever work you do, um, you can amass all kinds of wealth, do all kinds of great things, but at some point, uh, you're going to be cut off and you don't know what happens to it. Um, that same anxiety is expressed um, uh, to some extent in Psalm 90, um, also in Ecclesiastes. Um, but then, now let's, let's go to Acts. Would someone read Acts chapter 2, um, verses 29 to 36? This is from a sermon that Peter is delivering.
to 36. To 36, to 36 yeah. For David did not Yeah, so this is really interesting. Um, you know, here Peter is saying um, that the confidence that David expressed was in some way a foretelling of the resurrection. That, 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 in, that in some way, uh, you know, David knew and foresaw um, and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. Um, knew that God was going to defeat death. Uh, in, in, in one of his in one of his descendants, um, when Paul talks about the resurrection in chapter fifteen, the last thing that he says um, about the resurrection uh, is that because of the resurrection of the body, therefore your labor is not in vain. You know all of that anxiety about you know piling up wealth and not knowing where it's going and it all coming to nothing uh, is undone um, by by the resurrection. Um, so this is one place where, you know, in this, in this covenant, you know, it's sending us already on a, on a beeline, uh, to, uh, to Jesus. Um, let's see. I skipped over a couple things here. Just want to emphasize, oh, just want to emphasize, uh, two things, um, before we start talking about, um, David's role as king, uh, and in some sense, prophet and priest. Um, one is, uh, this notion of rest. Uh, it's mentioned a couple times um, at the beginning of 2 Samuel 7, uh, just in the narrative, the, ver you know, the first verse says, the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. Um, and, then, and then in verse 11, God says, I will give you rest uh, from all of your, of your enemies. Um, Kelly mentioned last week um, how in, in Deuteronomy, when the, uh, the fourth commandment, um, you know, to, to keep the Sabbath holy is given, um, it is, uh, it's motivated by the Exodus, right? So in, in the book of Exodus, when you get the fourth commandment, it says, because God created in six days, uh, but set aside the seventh, therefore keep the Sabbath holy. Um, in Deuteronomy, it says, because God brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, therefore, uh, keep, the, keep the Sabbath. Um, this notion of, of God giving his people rest um, is, a, is a very significant one uh, in, the, in the scriptures and very significant to this, uh, to this covenant. Um, and it's worth remembering, again, that Sabbath rest, when we talk about how we rest because God rests, um, God doesn't rest because he's tired. God doesn't rest because he needs a break uh, from what he's been doing. Um, God rests because the work is finished. God rests uh, because everything is in place for him to um, govern the universe without hindrance, uh, without threat uh, from, from, from enemies. Um, when he takes his people out of Egypt, remember, he, he, he tells Moses to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go in order that they may worship me, right? So coming out of Egypt, coming out of the house of slavery, you know, has that purpose um, that the people would be able to worship. Um, and now again, it's significant um, that God has given his people rest from their enemies and is going to give David rest from all his enemies at that point when he's taken this city to reign uh, and the ark is there. And so what's being set up here, what it means uh, for God's people to have rest um, is to be unhindered in their worship of him. Um, so that's one thing I wanted to, to highlight. Um, the other thing is just this Emmanuel principle. Uh, the Lord is with you. Um, Again, you know, when God tells the story to David, he says, you know, you were in that pasture watching those sheep, and even then I was with you. And I was with the people in Egypt. I brought them out. Um, and, and even when he talks about, you know, the fact that he's been in this tent, um, you, you know, some of the implication here is, look, you were in tents. 
you were wandering. You were moving about. And so in order for me to be with you, I had to be wandering about. I had to be in a tent. You know, so for that period, that was appropriate. And I didn't need a fancy palace. I didn't need a, a, a permanent structure um, because I'm with you. Um, again, we get, we get some uh, New Testament um, completion, fulfillment of this, of this concept when we look at the way Second Peter uh, talks about the church, uh, talks about us being living stones, um, being built into a spiritual house. Um, that's in Second in Peter 2. Um, also talks about us being a royal priesthood. It's a place where this, a lot of this imagery comes together. Image of God is royal priesthood, spiritual house, God's presence. Um, you know, this is, this is God's purpose, is to, is to dwell with his people. Um, okay, so before we move on and talk a little bit about David's role as king, um, any questions or comments or thoughts um, what we talked about so far. <clears throat> yep. Like, like one comment. You talked sure. talk about David being a man after God's own heart. Yep. But we know from the accounts of First Kings, he didn't lead quite the perfect life. Right. Especially the New Testament never ever refers to this. David comes up quite often in the New Testament. The New Testament ignores it. So you see God's grace there. Forgotten, forgiven. David can be presented in the New Testament as truly the man after God's own heart. So the, yeah, and, and the history, right, and of course the history that follows David uh, is highly checkered, um, is really quite, quite dismal. Um, interestingly, what is, um, the accounts of the kings, you know, the stories that, you know, start with Solomon and the division of the kingdom, and then especially as you follow Judah, uh, the southern kingdom, um, the stories are very repetitive, a lot of them. Um, you know, a lot of them, you know, they refer to the wickedness of the next king in the same way as the one he, who, who came before. Uh, it all keeps going back to the sins of Jeroboam, who sets up these, you know, alternate temples. Um, you know, reestablishes the high places for the people to go worship at, things like that. Um, but one thing that you hear again and again in these very repetitive stories is that God keeps saying, but I'm not going to make a full end. I'm going to leave a remnant. I'm going to leave a representative. Um, and even in Jeremiah, you know, uh, we read this a few weeks ago, you know, when the total destruction is foretold um, in terms reminiscent of the unmaking of creation, even there God says, but I'm not going to make a full end. You know, there's still going to be a remnant. And so his, um, his commitment to this promise that he's making to David is unwavering. Um, and that... Um, yeah, that, that, that undergirds that grace. Um, it's, 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 it's God's commitment to his own, uh, to his own promises. Yeah, good. Other thoughts? Questions? Yeah, Leonard. So I'm looking at the, uh, uh, declaration by David, uh, back to the, uh, over and over again, he used the word forever, forever, forever. Yep. Yep. Um, you know, how supposed he uh, play itself out in terms of the expectations of the nation? Uh, and even when Christ came as king of Israel, uh, can only be fulfilled if it has in Christ. Uh, and in Hebrews chapter 1, uh, it speaks about him being uh, by throne of God forever. Can you speak to the relationships between Christ? This uh, promise, this declaration to David, where it says, uh, uh, Your house and your kingdom will be made sure forever, and your throne will be established forever. Right. The idea of his throne will be established forever is a motif that's very challenging. Yeah, yeah. Well, so let me, um, I just realized we're shorter on time than I, than I thought we were. And I think we need to actually finish on time since we're in here. Um, so let me answer that by going to this. Um, uh, I'm looking mostly at, at the back of your, your handout now. Um, yeah, we know how, 
we know how the Davidic story plays out uh, and, the, and the kings that, that follow him. Um, an interesting question to ask is how is it that David's covenant relates to Abraham's covenant and to Moses' covenant? I mean, on the one hand, um, it's tempting sometimes to set these things against each other and to say, boy, it seems like the promises made to Abraham are totally unconditional. Um, but in Moses, you have all this law and all these conditions. Um, how do we understand those uh, relating to each other? Um, interesting, with, with David, you've kind of got both. You do have these unconditional promises. You just referred to a bunch of them, like all these like forever, 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 right? Uh, at the same time, verse 14 of chapter 7, uh, God says, I will be to him a father, uh, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, uh, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. So, you know, is it conditional or is it unconditional? Um, is it guaranteed blessings forever and ever? Um, you know, or is there punishment? Um, you know, how are, how are those things, you know, both, both going to be true? And, that, and that's where I think Leonard, you know, had it right that, you know, this is, this is where uh, David's kingdom is the climax of the covenant as far as the Old Testament is concerned, but it really doesn't make sense until we see Jesus. Um, it doesn't make sense how God can um, both establish his kingdom forever and, and have this remnant never go away, and at the same time, actually make good on this promise uh, to punish um, wickedness. You know, actually, um, you know, actually see justice uh, be be done. Um, you know, what we have in what we have in Jesus is one who. Um, it's referred to by Matthew as both the son of Abraham and the son of David. Uh, he is one, you know, who is the ultimate son of the promise. Uh, he is the one through whom uh, the unconditional and unmerited grace of God is going to is going to come and be fulfilled. Um, you know, and at the same time, uh, is one who is obedient, fully obedient. Um, you know, when he says he fulfills the law of Moses, that in Matthew five, that can be taken in multiple senses. He actually fulfills the law of Moses by doing it. Uh, he also fulfills the law of Moses in the sense of being its goal, um, you know, and, and of being the one, you know, on whom all the penalties are, are going to come to rest. Um, you know, he ends up being this son who's disciplined um, with the rod of men, uh, as, as it says here and as, as Isaiah talks about. Um, you know, and so this, you know, it, it, it is the way that, the way that, Jesus fulfills the covenant with David um, is ultimately what helps us bring the covenants of, with Abraham and with Moses together um, and see how God is and can be faithful, you know, both to unconditional grace uh, and at the same time to, to full justice. Um, worth reading. I've got a couple minutes here, uh, and so maybe it's just worth uh, just closing with a couple of the Psalms uh, that really speak to this. Um, could somebody read Psalm 2? Today I have begotten 
As for me, I will make the nations your inheritance, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break me with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a common vessel. Now therefore, kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear, with trembling, kiss his feet, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. His wrath is put to him. Blessed are all who take refuge. Thanks. And then let me close just by reading just this first verse from Psalm 110. Uh, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Um, And it was kind of a kind of delightful moment um, in the Gospels um, when, you know, one of the points when opposition is arising to Jesus and the Pharisees are coming to test him, he, he, he turns to them and just poses this question like, how can David say that? Like, how can David say, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool? What on earth is he talking about? Um, and they don't know. You know, they're, they're, they're puzzled. Um, you know, the one to whom this refers is, is standing in front of him and, and, and posing the question. Um, and, uh, you know, and it, it is, is, is there to bring all these things to their, to the, their fulfillment. Um, we have to wrap up there. Uh, people are going to be filtering in for worship. Um, so let me just pray for us, uh, and then we'll pick this up again next week. Father in heaven, um, I'm thankful that you are a God of stories because you are a God of history. Uh, I'm thankful that, um, you know, what we see here, that, uh, that, that you come and, and declare yourself to be a God who was with your people in Egypt, uh, but also when you're talking to David, you say, you know, I was with you uh, when you were in that pasture. Uh, Father, I pray that we all would um, have that deeper sense uh, of the fact that uh, even when you have felt far away, when we have felt far from you, in fact, you've been near. In fact, you've been with us. Uh, in fact, you have made promises and you have always been faithful uh, to, those, to those promises. Um, and Lord, would that give us the courage to pray? Uh, would it give us the courage to come before you as your people uh, boldly, uh, with confidence before your throne, uh, in order to worship you? Uh, that is what we're here for, um, and we know that you are the ones who have called us to it. So we pray all this in your name. Amen. Thank you.